it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kierkegaard, and thanks to Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation, our weekly sit-down with the people shaping the beer industry, and through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. The Australian brewing landscape is evolving rapidly, and here we try and make sense of what is happening, and better understand the issues shaping the industry. This week, Professor Sam Holloway. Sam Holloway is the Bay Area Distinguished Professor of Management and Entrepreneurship at the University of Portland. He's also a beer lover, and in addition to being on the board of a brewery, he developed Crafting a Strategy, an online digital curriculum that gives brewing entrepreneurs the tools, wisdom, and knowledge to go out and improve the world, one community at a time, one craft beer business at a time. He's currently in Australia, and next week on February 19, he will be presenting an IBA mashup in Sydney at Wayward Brewing. We caught up with him by phone before he left to discuss the challenges facing small breweries and how they can adapt to the rapidly changing beer industry. If you'd like to learn more about crafting a strategy, there's a link in the show notes, as well as to the event information for the IBA mashup. And here is my conversation with Sam Holloway. Sam Holloway, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be talking to you. How could I not talk to you when uh, when I was um, offered the, the, the chance to to discuss one of the articles that was shared with me, ran with the headline, Can You Imagine a World Without Budweiser? We can. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your, your background in beer and uh, how you came to uh, take that view of the world. Well, um, I, I have to give credit to... Uh, my editor, Brian, at theconversation.com, he helped us come up with that title and a, a few of the other catchphrases. One of the challenges of being a professor or a professional nerd is uh, sometimes we need, we need help from, from real journalists to uh, get, get to the point. And uh, I, think, I think that title speaks for itself. Um, you know, for, for me, uh, being, being a professor, I have one of the best jobs in the world. And I happen to... Uh, fall in love with the craft beer industry and, and meet a brewer while I was earning my doctorate and just, you know, wanted to help him any way that I could from helping him stand up tanks to placing concrete to, uh, you know, drinking as much of his beer as I could to make him a commercial success. Although that wasn't the best health decision. I, I still tried. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so as a professor, there's only, there's only two things that, uh, that are bad about a professor job. Uh, any professor that tells you they love to grade papers is, is lying. Um, but the other thing that's limiting about being a professor, at least in the case of my, my job at the University of Portland, is it's a wonderful place, but I can only really help the people that have the time and the money and are geographically close to me to, to sit in class. And crafting a strategy was something that a, a few of us, three founders, we really wanted to develop something that could go beyond the walls of the university and and really get the information that we felt small breweries needed in their hands. Because uh, most MBA programs, uh, they basically teach one strategy, which is to get large, to get big. And uh, if, if little breweries all over the world think the only way to, to succeed is to get large, they're actually playing right into the hands of Anheuser-Busch InBev and Heineken and some of these large players, because they're never going to win that way. And so we're we're really using crafting a strategy as a, a medium to 
let people know that there's plenty of other ways to grow and there's plenty of ways to be successful. And that article was really the culmination of about five years of previous research and us just, you know, putting to, putting something out there that says, gosh, you know, l- let's try to explain what the world would look like if drinking occasions returned to more of a personal experience with friends in a pub versus uh, buying the cheapest product available and, and uh, uh, at a grocery store, et cetera, particularly in the U.S. and in Europe. It, it's funny that you say that if you set yourself up to compete with uh, the, the AB InBevs, then you're almost setting yourself up to fail because in, in a lot of ways that was the mindset that we saw with a lot of the breweries um, get big um, you know, real quick. Yeah, and, and so I, I, should, um, I should correct that. Uh, I think if you entered the beer industry 25 years ago, getting big through the old methods was the right strategy. But I think if you're trying to get big and, and enjoy some of the advantages of being big and you're starting now, you're, you're 20 to 25 years too late. Uh, so I think in the current market, it's uh, unless you are unless you start with extremely deep pockets, uh, which most craft breweries don't, uh, you're really going to be playing in a game that that requires deep pockets and deep expertise and and bargaining power. And and in the case in the United States, you know, AB InBev owns most of the wholesale channels. In addition to that, so it just never made sense to us professors to to keep teaching folks that the only way they could compete head to head was to to play by the same game. I think fundamentally strategy is about doing things differently than your rivals. And that's really what the craft beer global revolution is, is people believing in different and more varieties of beer, different flavors, more intense flavors. And along with that comes a very fragile product that doesn't ship very well. And so if you can't ship your product long distances and keep it shelf stable, then why are you playing that game? At least in my opinion. Well, there's so much in that that we'll unpack over the course of the next 30 minutes. But I guess, again, just going back to the 25 years ago, there was a strategy. And I guess we've recently seen some of the breweries that date back to around about that period. Um, You know, uh, New Belgium, um, uh, Sierra Mm -hmm. Nevada. grew very quickly they were they, they reached a certain size but then certainly in the case of some of the breweries like uh you know stone and uh new belgium once they expanded to try and take it to the next level they seem to hit a glass ceiling of some sort do you think that you know e- even those bigger you know older breweries um have the ability to com- compete with sierra nevada or did they overreach i should compete with abn bev i should say sure sure i think it's a great question and you know, I'll start with um, New Belgium. I think it's a really interesting case study of a company that for a long time was uh, fiercely independent and really one of the leaders, along with Sierra Nevada and Stone, in, in growing the, the market in America um, and, and kind of showing a path forward for little breweries with a certain set of beliefs and uh, how business can be and how to treat people. And certainly in um, New Belgium's case, how to treat the environment, its core to who they are. Um, but even even that company, uh, you know, th- they did some wonderful things like uh, set up an employee stock ownership plan or for their for their employees. But even if you read between the lines of this final sale that they just made, um, the the burden of having a very large company with a lot of people that are getting ready to retire and having to fund those agreements that were made in the past, uh, along with just increasing competition uh, against the larger and larger breweries, meant that. They had to sell to someone with even deeper pockets than New Belgium had, and uh, and and I think the New Belgium is a great case of 
this is just competition the way that it is once you reach a certain size. Uh, if you if you recall, the the founders um, had had already done the employee stock ownership plan and sort of taken their chips off the table many years before. But in their role as advisors, they said it's time for us to to get access to you know deeper pockets and relationships in order to continue to behave the way that we want. And so so I think um, it's a cautionary tale. I mean, Stone Brewing as well, they're fiercely independent, but they've also taken money from private equity to sort of uh, continue the growth curve that, that they had hoped to do. So it's uh, you have to watch what you wish for uh, as a brewery that is sort of one of these legacy breweries that is, you know, you know, let's say half a million hectoliters or, you know, half a million barrels big and continuing to grow, you're going to start coming up against market forces and bargaining power differences of the Heinekens and Carlsbergs and, you know, all of these large, large international companies. And quite frankly, they're better at it. So you you either have to get the resources to play at their game, which we're seeing, um, or you have to maybe in, in, in the case of most of the breweries that use crafting a strategy, make a strategic choice to stay small and thrive uh, without this, uh, you know, burdensome growth that we saw 20 years ago. Can a, a craft brewery be big or is there just something in the promise of craft and independence that when you do get to a certain size, your traditional base no longer sees you as the thing that they supported to begin with? But then you're also not big enough to take on the the, the breweries that aren't seen as as being in that space, and you almost exist in a in a netherworld between the two. Well, that's a very complex question to unpack. Um, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think the the number one thing to remember is there's never been a better time to be a beer consumer ever, probably in the history of the world than right now. Uh, consumers have more choices more new choices, more variety in choices. But with that, it's, it's much harder to build a beer business when all people want is what's new. Uh, I use the word promiscuous to describe beer drinkers all over the world. Uh, they, they, they never have any loyalty. They're, <laughs> they're not loyal to any one brand. Um, and so, and they're always wanting what's new and different. And it can be really difficult to build a business that way. That being said, I'm really only referring to kind of these legacy core consumers that have been in craft you know, for, for many years, there's still, even in a country like the United States, there are still huge segments of the population that either don't drink beer at all or don't drink craft beer that are now more willing to move over than ever before. Um, and so, and I think that the Sierra Nevadas of the world um, have uh, have just done an amazing job of staying independent and and growing and uh, and and provide you know that that case study of someone. Who was they? Even though they were there a long time ago, and, and they largely built the category, they're still able to keep doing it. Um, we've seen some other sort of legacy craft brewers join up recently. I think you're going to see a lot more of the top 200 breweries in the United States merge with each other as they're trying to drive down their average cost of goods sold and compete with the large uh, international breweries. Um, so, so I think yeah, we're going to see a lot more consolidation at the top and a lot more new entrants and fragmentation. Uh, at the bottom, uh, regardless of which country you're in. Is Sierra, Sierra Nevada still growing? I know that they, around 2017, everyone experienced a few headwinds, but has Sierra Nevada returned to growth? Uh, that's a great question. I would bet that they are flat to to down. Uh, I don't have the, the figures right in front of me, but they're, um, they're, they're, they're maintaining uh, where they're at better than some folks are. Hmm. Um, so, but, but again, that's a cautionary tale. You know, most of the most of the top 100 
craft breweries in the United States uh, were flat or down last year, with the exception of those that, like founders, that accessed deep pockets of Mahu San Miguel and, and you know, Lagunitas, which uh, has a relationship or an investment, or actually now it's fully owned by Heineken. Mm. It's interesting because another article that I uh, um, turned to when I was uh, doing some reading was an article that you co-authored just over a year ago, uh, posing the question, has the Brewers Association become too big to succeed? Um, sort of looking at how big mm-hmm. the, uh, the the association that represents breweries has grown and the trouble it has in representing all of the many interests as, uh, as the market becomes fragmented. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh there's a lot of people at the Brewers Association that I highly respect, and they're they're in some ways a, a victim of their own success. Uh, they need to ensure, and that's what this blog uh, talked about, uh, and a couple other blogs I've written. They need to ensure that the largest breweries in their membership um, are well represented, and they've done a good job with that. They've, you know, gotten the the excise tax law passed in the United States, which, you know, if if you're more than 10,000 barrels of beer produced a year, let's say that's, I don't know, 13,000 hectoliters or so, then, uh, you know, a, 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 a few cents per barrel decrease in tax starts to make a really big difference. I think the challenge is that 98% of the breweries in the United States and probably 95% of the breweries in their membership are so small that that, that 35 cent decrease really has no effect. And so, so that's, that's the challenge is when you're uh, I, I think the, the the other challenge for the Brewers Association in the United States is that their their definition of what craft is is has become a little bit problematic, in my opinion. Um, it, it worked so well when all the breweries were small and we were sort of banding together to fight against the large industrial brewers, and it was a it was a wonderful uh, sort of rallying point for for any craft brewery to look at. And the challenge now is that they're they're reporting statistics that you know, suggest the market share for their definition of craft is at about, you know, 13% or so and, and not growing very fast. And I think the challenge, the challenge that I like to point out is there are still a lot of well-made beers by former craft breweries that have been bought by InBev and Heineken that are actually growing the market share uh, tremendously, uh, maybe even, you know, 17, 18, 19%. And, and the, the challenge that I have as a as a small brewery shareholder and as someone that studies the industry is if the only statistic that gets reported is that we're hovering around 13% and we're not growing, what if a bank or a landlord starts to listen to that and they don't know that actually, well, a fuller flavored beer, which Bart Watson, the chief economist came out um, and and stated that fuller flavored beer actually accounts for more like 17% of the market and it's growing. And I believe even said we have another 20 share to go. If if banks and landlords only hear that 13% number and only hear that the definition of craft for the Brewers Association isn't getting bigger, they might start to look to other industries to rent to. They might think that the industry is not a great place uh, to to uh, offer debt or or for investors. They might think, well, gosh, it's it's hovering. When the truth is, more people are drinking fuller flavored beer. To use that quote in the United States than ever before. And we've, if you follow innovation theory like I do, we've crossed the chasm. You know, if 16% of the market adopts a new innovation or starts buying a certain product, that opens up what we call the early majority and the late majority, which is over 60% of the market. And if we conclude all the formerly craft brewers in that definition, we're, we're well beyond it and we're, we're growing and it's an exciting industry to be in. 
Where do you sit then on such things as the definition of independence? Because Australia um, is one of the countries that, you know, the, the debate around craft did become moot because it was very hard to sort of say that a, a brewery was craft, wasn't craft when it was uh, still owned by one of the, the, the multinationals. And we moved a couple of years ago right. to the idea of independence. So where do you see that as a, a, a as a branding and a marketing term? I think it's a I think it's good a good ambition to have clearly defined set of standards. I think the the challenge is that the the line between independent and not independent craft and crafty or non-craft it's blurring um, as as things grow in popularity as as the industry grows in popularity. And I'm excited to get down to Australia and, and talk to more people. Um, I, I think it's it's really dangerous to have too too tight of a definition. Um, because at the end of the day, all entrepreneurs uh, are looking for growth opportunities, and growth often means success. And so, um, it, I, I don't have a, ever have a problem with an entrepreneur doing what's right for their business if it means uh, getting access to, to more capital. Now, sometimes this comes from what maybe what aren't considered independent breweries in Australia, but that's better for that company. It's better for their employees. It's better for the types of benefits that that entrepreneur or those entrepreneurs can provide to to their employees. So it's it's a tough spot. Um, and uh, sure, there's going to be some consumers that get really upset over something like that. Like you mentioned before, you know, gosh, I helped these folks get from almost nothing to something special and they had to go and do this. But at the end of the day, um, that means they're going to be able to get more fuller flavored beer to more people. And I don't see how that's bad. What then is your advice to breweries that maybe started in the last four or five years? Number one advice is uh, learn how to grow and stay small. And I I say that uh, intentionally. Um, The old model of growth, which was to grow the volume of beer that you made and to grow through scale and put beer into bottles and cans and get into, you know, supermarkets and grocery stores. Again, I think that model is going to always be... um, It's always a losing proposition when you start to compete head-to-head with the multinational companies. So, you know, instead of – if you're a two to 5,000 hectoliter brew pub with maybe one or two outlets in a a great city like Brisbane, um, instead of trying to get your beer uh, across the country in grocery stores, maybe uh, open up a a third place nearby. Even in Portland, Oregon, where I live, there are – and we have over 100 breweries in the city limits – there are still neighborhoods – that are just yearning for for their chance to call something their own. They're learn, yearning for their local brewery. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, if, if you run a, a really nice um, tap room where you make and sell your own beer over the counter at, you know, six or seven dollars a pint, sometimes five or six dollars a pint, depending on where you're at in U.S. dollars, you know, you can run a, let's say, a, an $800,000 a year tap room business with a 20% gross margin, or you could try to run a two to three million dollar wholesale business at almost no margin. Which one would you rather do? And I think that's the the new the new growth that we are seeing is uh, at brewery sales, at brewery on tap room sales, um, beer to go sales directly from the brewery. Those are the things that allow you to grow your profitability, to reduce your risk, to deleverage yourself. That's the kind of growth that I think any brewery started in the last five to seven years should focus on. 
um, not trying to get huge and, and ship your beer all over the country. It's interesting you say that because in a lot of ways that flies in the face of the model that a lot of brewers set out trying to do, where it was get bigger, get your cost of goods uh, down, um, you know, as I was told, probably 15, 18 years ago when I first started, beer is a sure. uh, unit yep. cost game. Um, to, 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 to duplicate your um, tap rooms and your, uh, your, your business, essentially, uh, it, it is almost to lock in the costs in a lot of ways. You're, you know, you're right. Um, but the, the fundamental assumption of that, uh, that choice, that strategic choice, is that your firm has some level of bargaining power, that your firm is going to be able to bargain with their wholesale partners to get a better deal. And I think, uh, you know, if you were early into the craft movement and maybe, you know, you were selling to the, to the wholesaler that also distributed Budweiser in Australia or that distributed Heineken in Australia, I, I, let me check real quick. I mean, we have this three-tiered system in the United States. Before I go talk much about Australia, do you have a similar arrangement? No. Uh, it, and, I haven't visited yet. So, uh, so how does it work in Australia? Uh, well, yeah, cause, and you're actually anticipating uh, – potentially my next question which is you know how dependent is on is it on the the legislation and in, in the structure of the industry um in, in australia breweries can sell directly to venues so they don't have the three-tier system but uh-huh. just as you said that the uh you know distribution is pretty much locked in by the, the big brewers yeah so it may not be legislated but some of the same, same challenges still still occur is that is that fair to say absolutely breweries can um contract directly the, the big breweries can contract directly with uh venues hotels um pubs and sure. yeah. uh, essentially lock out opposition um by directly contracting well and, and it, it makes sense too if, if you're a large hotel chain and you're the beer buyer would you rather talk to to one supplier maybe uh you know somebody that controls 35 breweries and can offer you all the variety or would you rather have to talk to 25 independent small breweries, uh, your life's going to be easier if you go big too. And so again, I think for the breweries that, um, you know, the little breweries that want to grow, um, playing by those old rules, I think you're, you're making things more difficult on yourself than you need to, but it does take a different way of thinking. You, you do have to have the courage to go away from maybe the, the ideas that you launched with. I, again, it's, it's a little bit scary and that's, one of the reasons we developed crafting a strategy was, gosh, you know, everything that biz- normal business teaches you is to get big. But what if you're not? And what, what if you're not big and you you don't plan to get huge or maybe legislation like in the United States prevents you from switching wholesalers? Or what if market forces prevent you from, you know, getting into some of these big hotels in a place like Australia? What do you do then? And that's really what crafting a strategy is. is we have a, over 150 content pieces where business professors sat down and said, okay, if, if the old rules of getting big don't apply anymore, how do we have to change what we're teaching? Um, and, and that's what craftingastrategy.com is, is a, a living, breathing online community of knowledge and information about doing business a different way. And we'll be linking uh, in, in the show notes uh, to, to the website. Um, <laughs> for, for somebody that says that uh, as an academic, they need help from a journalist, um, some of your uh, headlines are certainly very captivating. One of the ones I was just reading has craft beer flavor innovation played itself out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that flavor innovation is one of the things that small uh, brew pubs are very much focusing on. Um, you, you think that maybe they've gone too far or that, that it's not an advantage anymore? Well, it's it's one of these hard truths, right? I mean, 
the the number of new new entrants, the the sophistication of consumers. I think the promiscuity of consumers is, you know, there's a standard thing in business that, uh, well, you should listen to your customers and give them what they want. And I, I certainly don't disagree with that. The challenge is when your customer continuously wants something new and different than you gave them before, you can get to the point where you you run out of you run out of new ideas. And so this um, I it's actually really nice of a real journalist to compliment one of my headlines. Thank you for that. <laughs> Um, but that I, I can't take credit for it. Uh, Tommy Arthur, who, uh, was one of the first brewery founders I interviewed when I, when I started my academic career, it was his idea and it was his quote. And he, he emailed me it, I hadn't talked to him in probably five, five to six years. And I was very flattered. He emailed me and said, this is a really hard problem. What innovation theory out there could help me explain it? Because I think we're reaching the end. And what I said in that blog and what we said in trying to help Tommy answer the question is, yeah, you're right. If the only thing that you're innovating on are the inputs, the hops, the yeast, kind of the, the incremental uh, product inputs, then yes, you're going to quickly run out of innovation. And in the United States, I think we're seeing that right now. Consumers are a little bit fatigued with the next milkshake IPA, brute <laughs> IPA, hazy IPA. And the last thing we want to do is have so much what, what, what the blog and what innovation theory calls incremental product innovation that we turn people off. And so what I tried to say in the, in the blog and, and in helping Tommy answer the question was there's actually four types of innovation. While incremental innovation is the one that home brewers love and it's the one that sort of motivated uh, our, probably our initial idea to go pro as a home brewer. Uh, there are two other types of innovation, modular innovation and architectural innovation that can offer you, you know, incredibly new ways to please consumers if you run out of the ability to buy that next top, get access to the next top. And if it's okay with you, I'll try not to get too academic here, uh, which is my tendency. I'll apologize in advance. But let me just give a, a quick example of what a modular innovation is or what an architectural innovation is. Is that okay? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So if, if incremental product innovations are what everybody's doing, and it sounds like that's really popular in Australia as people compete to have the next coolest beer, if those start to get confusing in the minds of consumers or you, you yourself develop innovation fatigue, what can you do? So what a modular innovation says is that's when a new core technology is plugged into a fundamentally, fundamentally unchanged product architecture. Okay, so what does that mean? You know, examples would be barrel aging, decoction mashing, right? Uh, also, if you're a large company and you can afford the equipment, that's when you can use traditional de-alcoholization by reverse osmosis. And we see uh, dry January in the United States being promoted by the firms that can afford that half a million dollar piece of equipment. Um, but you're not seeing a lot of small companies do it because they can't afford it. Uh, example beer styles for a modular innovation. And again, this is just plugging and playing some new technology in the existing architecture. This is how you get Belgian lambics and bourbon barrel aged stouts. The other thing that you can change is instead of plugging and playing with one of the processes, maybe you can change how the processes talk to each other. So this requires, you know, very little uh, money, very little investment. You're just looking at, okay, let's look at how I make beer right now and how the equipment that I have and the order of things, the order of uh, operations to make the beers that I like. If I make small tweaks here or there, I can improve aspects of the beer. So uh, one of the things you do is if you bottle condition your beer, 
you can improve its shelf life by still making the same beers. And so in the last Abbey several years ago, they added an additional port midway up the sidewall of their bright tank in order to circulate the beer to allow for a more homogeneous mixture of priming sugar. That's an architectural innovation. Uh, if you're doing kettle sours, there's other ways to, to develop a sour beer. Uh, we, we had a, I had a brewer help me with this. Again, I'm not a brewer. But uh, talking about a lactobacillus reaction and pH drop in the fermenter instead of the kettle so that you can scale up to the fermenter size beyond what the kettle allows. And then you boil after the pH drop to produce sour beer. So again, that's just taking equipment you already have and having them talk to each other in a different order. Uh, and this is also how you make seltzer. So I know hard seltzer is, is scary to a lot of brewers all over the world that don't have the equipment. But, you know, hard seltzer is I don't need the brew house anymore. I've got fermentation and packaging equipment only. I can start producing hard seltzer and selling that maybe to a customer group that isn't currently interested in the bitterness of the beers that I make. And so those are just some examples of innovations that any brewery of any size can make if they just think a little bit beyond incremental product innovation. Listening to you talk about that, I, I, and perhaps I'm a little bit cynical, but radical innovation sounds like a much easier sell in a very noisy marketplace. Modular innovation and architectural innovation sound like the storytelling required to tell people about the innovation um, would, would be a much harder sell. Uh, I, I think I always come at it from the cost side. I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm an economizing, cost-driven uh, entrepreneur and advice giver. <laughs> and radical innovation generally takes deep pockets. Um, you know, modular innovation, for that matter, takes deeper pockets than architectural innovation. And so, you know, radical innovation is the cool buzzword. There's no doubt about it. It's it's the thing that people like to talk about and get excited about, but it, it, it's what you know, keeps you on social media, though. Whereas modular innovation, talking about uh, decoction mashing, doesn't light up Instagram and it doesn't light up Untapped. Uh, you, you're probably right there. However, um, like a lot of people in uh, in the United States, they use they use the word radical innovation because it is eye catching and because it is sort of clickbait, but. It doesn't match with the theory. Now, maybe that's why I'm a professor and not a journalist, because <laughs> I, I stick with, with what the theory says, I guess. Well, yeah. well funnily enough, Ed, I mean, our approach as a website is to, isn't clickbait and radical innovation. It is uh, <laughs> trying to sort of tell the harder stories. And uh, yeah. so it makes for, for more gentler, more organic growth. Yeah, and, and cheaper. I think keeping that in mind, you know, it's um, the example I give in the blog for radical innovation is this wonderful beer called Playground IPA, made by a small craft brewery in Utrecht, Netherlands. And, uh, you know, they have a very proprietary yeast strain that is able to, you know, go through the fermentation process without producing any alcohol, just barely trace amounts. And then they couple that with a slightly different pasteurization technique just on that beer. You know, a lot of craft brewers, uh, pasteurization is a no-no. That, that removes flavor and, you know, it's a nod towards a shelf-stable beer versus a very fresh beer. And a lot of crappers just won't do it. But this company, um, I, they, they, I've tried the beer several times. It tastes wonderful. The, the non-alcoholic beer driven by Heineken in the Netherlands is growing tremendously. And Playground IPA is the non-alcoholic craft beer of choice of that country. So, so again, for them, they, they made a big bet and it worked. Um, but that's, it, again, it's risky. It's expensive. And if you're able to do it, you can reap the rewards like they are. But for a brewery that is just doing doing pretty well making traditional IPAs and stouts and lagers, to make that jump to radical innovation, you're inviting a lot of risk and 
a lot of trial and error that you you need the deep pockets to survive. As a small brewery um, where, where you are in, you know, uh, the, the bubble, um, the, the craft beer bubble that is very noisy, um, you, you know, there's a million Facebook groups, social media, um, all pinging and telling you about what your competitors are doing, um, seeing people share. How hard is it to... Uh, you know, stick to your guns and stay focused on your own business in in, in light of all of that noise and distraction? Well, I, I, there's a long history um, in, in business literature of uh, founders and, and business operators taking their eye off the ball. Um, one of the most common and most tragic is when when businesses get ready to grow, the founders have to spend a lot of their time fundraising and they can they can often uh, take their eye off the the ball in terms of the operation of their business there's there's many merger and acquisition deals that go south because in the six months of due diligence that are occurring they they miss their numbers and, and they aren't performing as well because the the person in charge has been spending all their time talking to investors and pitching to investors and 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 that can be a challenge and so I think um, I think for a, for a craft brewery and uh, certainly for the breweries that are members at crafting a strategy we're constantly taking a hard look at what we are as a brewery, what we've become, but also why did we get into this business? And, and maybe we'd like to take a, a vacation or, or have a weekend off sometime. How do we, how do we, you know, make sure that we, we meet our commitments and uh, uh, please our customers, but also uh, find balance in, in our personal life. And those sorts of questions are much harder to answer. And that's, you know, the blog you referenced earlier in a year that soured, here were some winning strategies. These are firms that that took their their foot off the gas and said, "I'm I'm not going to continue to win." You know, strategy is always about winning, and if winning only means growing through volume and losing money and and increasing my risk, I better redefine what winning means for me. And that, that's really what we try to do at Crafting Strategy: is say there are so many more ways to win. You're not going to get rich. You know, you're 25 years too late to be purchased by you know one of these one of these huge multinationals. Uh, it'll it'll still happen. They'll still pick and choose their spots, but I don't believe it's a good strategy for the average successful craft brewery. So, so let's redefine a way that that winning that does appeal to us, and let's look at those goals. And that's really what that that blog was, which was let's take strategic theory and apply it to little breweries that are choosing a different future than growing volume. Another one of the articles that caught my eye when we talked, but uh, when I was preparing, was "Don't get stuck in the middle." European ownership, flagship strategies in craft yeah. beer market growth, and uh, the, the flagship, particularly, I'm in, I'm in the middle of writing an article for Flagship February, which was a whole month of articles celebrating the, the flagship beers around the world in the face of you know, what was the perception that there was growing consumer indifference to, to flagships? So maybe you can answer the question, yeah. is there still a place for a flagship-driven beer business? Well, I think the, the largest craft breweries out there sure hope so. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of flagship February was, was driven by the fact that, uh, you know, it, they're in a tough spot. If, if you're Sierra Nevada or more in my in my hometown, uh, most recently when Craft Brew Alliance sold the rest of their business to AB InBev, just imagine if, if you, you know, if it's 15 years ago and you make a decision to uh, grow your flagship beer and sell it all over the country, that means you're going to buy assets like brew houses and fermentation tanks that are huge and designed to make huge volumes of one beer. And 15 years ago, that was absolutely the right decision. 
But now you've got these an increasingly promiscuous consumer that always wants something different. And they, they may love your Hefeweizen, your Widmer Hefeweizen. They may, they may love your Sierra Nevada pale ale, and they, they may buy it occasionally, but they're not buying it in the previous volumes that they were. And so I think, you know, flagships are a great strategy. And, and what I talk about in that article about don't get stuck in the middle is if, if we're going to drive craft beer into the early majority and get up to 40, 50, 60 percent of all beer drank in a given market to be craft, then we absolutely need flagships. That's the strategy we need to appeal to someone that's not going to take a risk on a milkshake IPA. They want something that tastes a lot like the beer they've had before. And that's where Sierra Nevada Pale Ale can be absolutely a flagship that brings more and new beer drinkers into the craft beer fold. That's where, you know, the, the breweries that have been acquired by AB InBev and Heineken, like Lagunitas and, you know, uh, Ten Barrel, that's where they can absolutely bring a former light industrial lager drinker into craft by having something that appeals to that large majority. But again, the flagship strategy is only really, in my opinion, valuable if you're already big. Uh, and the rest of us small folks, we can offer that variety and sort of fill in the, ba- the vacuum behind the flagship folks. Just a quick example. Uh, my dad, who's a great guy, he grew up drinking Coors. That's still his favorite beer. He knows his son is an owner in a craft brewery. He knows his son gets to talk on programs like this podcast about craft beer. He doesn't drink it. And it's mostly because it's got too much alcohol in it. And it's a little bit intimidating. He doesn't want to have to learn. And so the beer that he will drink with me is made here locally in Portland. It's called dad beer. (laughs) And it's made with corn. And it tastes a lot like Coors when he was growing up. And it's safe. And that beer appeals to people like my dad that are in the late majority to craft. So my dad's always going to, if he ever moves over to IPA, he's the kind of guy that's going to drink, find one, choose it, drink it, and never switch. The challenge is, so that's where the flagships can still really work. The challenge for most of us that are appealing to these promiscuous consumers is they won't respond well to us investing in flagships. We need to have smaller tanks, more tanks, more variety, and deliver that to them. How much do you think that that smaller venue-based strategy is driven not so much by the liquid, but about the experience and that there's a change, you know, we hear a lot about uh, sort of younger um, consumers are all about the experience, um, whether whether it's travel or, you know, life, they, they don't buy things, they buy experiences. How much, you know, is the sitting and having a beer in the brewery part of you know more about the experience of sitting in the shadow of the stainless rather than actually having the beer itself well i I think it's the only competitive advantage that the small breweries have point blank very blunt um that's the 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 experience that we sell is the only reason someone would choose to pay six dollars a pint in our pub when they could get the same beer or an equal a beer of equal quality for four dollars a pint in a grocery store if they buy it by the bottle and so um, I've, got a, I've got another um, blog that uh, I hate to try to plug my stuff too much, but I've got <laughs> another blog that talks about, you know, the sources of value that, are, um, that drive buying decisions. And so the idea is that the technical value, which is, again, that's what we get excited about as home brewers and, and young craft beer professionals. You know, the technical value of a beer is it's, you know, it's IBUs, it's, it's flavor profile, it's mouthfeel, it's. It's all of those, you know, really good, wonderful things. And uh, people that get really excited about the technical value 
are the ones that go on untapped and the ones that blog about it. But that's only one third of the total value in a product or service. The other, the other two sources of value are the installed base. Who else is using this product that when I use it, it increases the value of that product to me? Uh, the classic example we use in business school is iPhones and iMessage, right? The huge installed base of iPhone users that can freely use iMessage and take and FaceTime to talk to each other anywhere they have a Wi-Fi connection for free. That's a huge value of the installed base. In a microcosm of a craft brewery, the installed base are all of the other people and the brewmaster and the pub tender and the person cleaning the tanks behind the glass. All of those people that are involved in this product and in this company increase the value of us consuming inside the, the tap room or the brewery versus drinking at home by ourselves. And then the, the third source of value is what are called complementary assets. So, you know, going to a tap room where they have tulip shaped glasses and or the perfect glass for that pint that I'm interested in, you know, th those sorts of things are really critical to us being able to offer the consumer surplus value through experiences, like you mentioned, versus only competing on the technical aspect of the beer, which is what increasingly happens in these crowded grocery store aisles. Then the game becomes advertising and expensive ways to communicate uh, versus sitting across the bar from someone and saying, hey, I see you're a regular and I know you normally like, you know, the, the bitterness of an IPA or a double IPAs. I have this pretty cool sour beer that you should try. In fact, let me give you a free one. Uh, I know you, you may not think you enjoy sour beers, but it's summer in Australia right now. This is incredibly refreshing. It's low alcohol. You can have more than two. Why don't you give it a try? That, that sort of sales approach doesn't happen in most, most grocery stores. It, it can happen at your brewery. Now, we're speaking to you because you're soon to be packing to come and visit down here. Uh, you're coming down to meet with uh, craft breweries and do some presentations? Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited. Uh, my friend, Andre San Martino, who's a business professor at the University of Melbourne. An occasional contributor to Brews News. Okay, excellent. <laughs> so you found, you found the right person. Uh, so Andre and I have been friends for a few years, and uh, we're starting to write papers together. We went to, again, we have the best jobs in the world. We flew to Pilsen Czech Republic last year for the Beeronomics Society Conference and talked about our research of collaboration brews between international breweries. Um, anyway, we struck up this friendship, and I'm trying to, I've been trying to figure out a way to get him to Portland, Oregon, and he's been trying to figure out a way to get me to come down to Australia. It worked out that we're going to be at an academic conference. Um, of the International Business Academy in Sydney. And then we, uh, Andre introduced me to you, and he introduced me to some other folks, including Kate Patterson from the uh, Independent Brewers Association. We're going to do a mashup at Wayward Brewing on uh, Wednesday, the 19th of February. And so, and there we're going to talk about has flavor innovation, uh, you know, um, played itself out. I'm also going to share some research that I have on product portfolio sizes. So how many beers you should offer if you still want to grow and be profitable versus just copying what everybody else is doing? What are sort of the limits on the cost side to that? I'll share some information that I have uh, in that area as well. Terrific. Well, uh, we'll certainly uh, link to all of that so people know where to find you and how to find you. And uh, uh, Sam, thank you very much for joining us on uh, Beer as a Conversation and uh, this fascinating conversation about the, the, the business of beer. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking about what we do and what we do as a community. You know, we're entrepreneurs uh, spread across 19 countries that really want to make sure every every neighborhood, every part of the world has their own brewery. And thank you for giving me this opportunity and this voice and also for teaching me about the Australian beer market. Now I know that there's no three-tiered system and uh, I need to come learn some more. <laughs> no troubles. And hopefully next time we have a chat, we'll get to have a beer in hand. Let's do it. Absolutely. 
And that was Professor Sam Holloway. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Crime Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Crime Malt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help partners create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of Brews News, and this was Beer as a Conversation. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. 